Well, I want to invite you to take out your Bibles. If you didn't bring one, we have red ones in the seat rack nearby that you can pull out. And I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. And once you find it, mark your place, because then I have something else I want to invite you to do. Luke chapter 16, we're going to look at verses 1 through 15. If you're still getting used to your Bibles, that's okay. It's about three-fourths of the way back, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke there uh, just a little bit later. Okay, I hear a lot of pages turning. So once you find it, mark your place. And then I have another thing I want to ask you to do. Would you take out your wallet, your pocketbook, if you just have a checkbook, whatever you have, and do you mind just pulling it out there? Do <clears throat> you trust me? And uh, John Ortberg has said that this is the temple where most Americans worship. Right here. Interesting comment, isn't it? And so what I want to just suggest, just kind of a little exercise here, would you mind... uh, Hand yours and trade with your neighbor, okay, right now. Do you mind doing that? Just trade with your neighbor? Okay? And now, now we're going to take a second offering. And I want you to give like you've never given before. Just kidding. No, you can give them back. But uh, all of us kind of feel a little nervous energy there, didn't we? There is this struggle we all have with money, all of us, some more than others, but we all feel it to some degree. Uh, Steve started a couple weeks ago when we started this whole series on whole, talking about how there's something that two-year-olds struggle with. There's a word they say, uh, besides the word no, what's the other word that most two-year-olds say? Mine, right? Uh, A few years ago, there was an episode on Sesame Street and they wanted to talk to children about this condition called mine-itis. You ever had it? I have. It's a lot of things, you know, that's mine! And sometimes that's the reason why it's difficult for us to uh, share it or let go. Um, We've often talked as a church family about an illustration that's gripped some of us, and that is that in the 12th century, terrible time in the history of organized Christianity when the Crusades were going on. Because it was a religious war, they hired mercenaries to kill people that they were mad at or angry at. And those mercenaries, before they went into battle, because it was a religious war, they wanted to baptize these guys. Can you believe that? So the mercenaries were smart enough that when they were being baptized, they held their swords out of the water as if to say, as long as this doesn't get baptized, I can use it any way I want. This still belongs to me. You know, the truth is, sometimes, this is what I've done with my wallet. I said, Jesus, you can have every area of my life, or at least many of them, but I don't want to lose control of this. And we are, as a church family, at a really interesting chapter. A couple years ago, we sensed that God was telling us that we, not, we needed to become a church that didn't keep helping people stay shallow. And so we've been saying it hundreds of times. I'll say it again. We believe God is calling us as a church to declare war on shallow Christianity 
beginning with ourselves. And so how, what, what, what contributes to shallow Christianity? Can I tell you part of the answer? Mine-itis. This idea that, Jesus, you can be my savior and forgive my sins and take me to heaven, but don't, don't ask to be the Lord of my life. And if you ask to be Lord of my life, don't ask to be Lord of my whole life. But we're learning again that if you want to mature in your faith, if you want a genuine relationship, not just religion, you want a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ, then you come to the place where you realize, whoa, you mean to tell me that the Bible is telling me that God, in order to bring us back to him, offered up his son for us who gave his whole life held nothing back so that he might rescue us from ourselves and from living a dead-end life and that we might become his, completely his, and that we might live the rest of our lives here on earth and into eternity where our whole lives belong to him. And also that as we do that, we become more and more whole. So if you're following along in the notes, here's what I hope you'll see today, is that we're in this series called Whole because we're learning that if we want to have a maturing faith, if, if the secret to mature faith is that Jesus came to be the Lord of our whole life. Maybe that's new for you. Some of you, you may be here and you're going, whoa, 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 this is my first time and it feels like we're going into Green Beret land. <laughs> but I want to just tell you that, you know, no matter where you are, maybe you're still trying to figure out if, if Jesus is even a valid person to trust or you don't even know what, where you are in that journey. I'm still glad you're here for a couple reasons. One, I think we're going to share today is really practical, and it can be helpful to you no matter where you are on the spiritual map. I think you're going to actually have some takeaways today. You're going to see God's wisdom being really practical. But the second reason is, is that if you do eventually follow his promptings and surrender your life to him, you're going to see just how this will look in your life. And so this may serve you well as you consider that whole decision. So Jesus came to be the Lord of our whole life. He came to make us whole, not just take us to heaven. He came to, to transform us here and now and into the future. Now, today, what I want to be real careful about, because when we talked about this whole series, we realized that it was really a subject about stewardship. And, and stewardship is a word I'm going to unpack in just a little bit, but stewardship, almost every time in churches when that word gets used, most people think, of what? What's the next word they think of? Money. And friends, I want to be real quick to say, stewardship does include money, you know? We don't just hold it out of the water. It does include money, but it's so much more than that. How many of you were blessed by Steve's message last week on the body? Again, we don't talk about that much, but that's a powerful, powerful understanding that stewardship is more than money, but it includes money. Well, because it includes money, I want to talk to you about it today. We talk about this every year, like I just told Bill. And this is something, friends, I got to tell you. I know that in some churches, the way they talk about money is there's some kind of angle. There's some kind of manipulation, or there's some kind of, hey, what? They want something from me. But I think anybody that's come to Cherry Hills very long knows that what we really want to do in this church family is not be a church that wants something from you, we want something for you. And in fact, not just us, we believe that's what Jesus wants for us. And so what's happened in the last few years, I'd say in the last 15, a revolution has happened in our church family that excites me. Maybe you looked at the back of the bulletin. 
and saw that something unbelievable is happening in this difficult economic times, many people are learning the power of generosity, the power of giving joyfully, the power of sharing their resources. I mean, that just touches on some of the things that are in the books. There's so many things that aren't mentioned there. Last year, you guys gave over $81,000 during our benevolence offerings, during communion, that could be distributed to people that are going through time of shortage in our church family. Unbelievable. And you know, the truth is, is that that doesn't even talk about what all the individual situations are going on. Many of you are doing things during the week that are anonymous. And you're concerned that only Jesus sees it, but you're doing things. And friends, it's just something's happened. So I know some pastors, they dread talking about this whole subject. I don't. I don't at all. And it's not because I can't wait to try and get my hands on your money. That's not it at all. In fact, I tell people this every year. Steve has said the same. Brian said the same. We don't talk about this subject so we can eventually look to see what you do. None of us pastors ever look at the books. Because, friends, I want you to know something. I don't want you to think that the reason why you're loved is because of what you do with money. I don't want to minister to you any differently because you do or don't give. I don't need to know all that stuff. I want to be free to challenge you toward mature faith without any of that stuff getting confused. But I will tell you, I'm really proud of the people that oversee finances in our church. And our deacons should be commended because they have handled our money very well over the years and it has given more trust in our church and I'm grateful for that. So I talk about all that because here's what I want to eventually hope you'll see in the passage we're going to look at today uh, that Jesus talks about. So if you've uh, got the notes there, notice this, that here's the honest truth. I think this is why some of us get kind of quiet when we talk about this subject, is that how I handle money reveals my true character. How I handle money, I don't know if you believe this or not, but how I handle money reveals my true character. That's what Jesus says. Now, in this whole series, there's a verse that, that Steve introduced the first week, and it's 1 Corinthians 4.2, and I've listed it there, and we're going to just reference it before we look at Luke 16 in a little bit, but let's read it together as it's listed in that first gray box. Let's read it out loud, full voice, and hear the word of God. Now, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. It's required of stewards that they be found faithful. Here it is in the New International Version. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. That's part of what stewards do. They, they handle a trust. Here's the New Living Translation. Now a person who is put in charge as a manager must be faithful. So the word steward, it, it can be just kind of a churchy word, although I've heard people that don't believe in God that want to take care of our environment that say, we've got to steward our planet better. And they understand that idea that this is on loan to us. We only have this for a time. It's not ours. We get to enjoy it. We get to participate in it. But if we don't take care of it, we got a stewardship problem. So the word steward, if you're looking for the definition there in the notes, notice that steward simply means to manage that which belongs to another. To manage that which belongs to another. It means to handle, oversee, care for that which belongs to another. And I'm using it there in a verb sense, but... A steward is noun, is someone who actually stewards things. And so you can use, interchange the word manager. My grandpa, my dad's father, was a farmer for years. And um, uh, he never owned 
his own farm. He was a tenant farmer. And one of the things that my grandfather was known for that I still am very proud of every time I think about him, he's a really quiet man, deep man, but is the way he took care of that farm. It wasn't his farm, but he took care of it like it was. And the neighbors watched that. They understood that. And after my grandpa, uh, you know, eventually finished farming, moved into town, I remember going back out to see that farm because a lot of childhood memories. And I remember that the next steward, the next tenant, didn't take really good care of it. And it was just sad. And I saw the contrast between good stewardship and bad stewardship. And the question, friends, isn't are you a steward? The question is, are you an honest, faithful, trustworthy? Am I an honest, faithful, trustworthy steward of what God has trusted to us? And when this begins to hit us, yeah, the gravity of the responsibility, but also the potential, because this is one of the ways God grows us up. If you're a good parent, you trust your kids with more and more responsibility and try and help them steward that well. And God put Adam and Eve in the garden. Very first thing after, creation, after creating them, puts them in a garden to steward that garden and care for it. And you and I have that kind of opportunity. And when we look at money, what I pray today is that by the time we walk to our cars, we will find ourselves believing God about this. And we will find ourselves looking at money or everything that represents money differently so that we can grow in this area. Can you imagine what will happen in our church family if we keep growing in this area? How might it prepare us for the future and even disaster if that were to happen, if we can just grow in this way, in this kind of character? Now, some of you are saying, I still want to know what you mean that money reveals character. Well, look at that second gray box. We'll eventually come to this verse and read it again, but let's read it now. Luke 16, 11, out loud together. Are you ready? If you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches, Jesus says. In other words, look, the way you handle money, Jesus says, is a character issue. If you, if you don't learn how to handle money, very practical, very tangible, very physical, then I can't trust you with greater spiritual responsibility because this is a training ground. This is a character thing. And a lot of us just go, I don't think money's spiritual. I don't think money has anything to do with my character. Jesus says you're wrong. It really does. And because of that, I want to teach you so that you can have your back be straighter. And when you lay your head on the pillow at night, you don't have to be ashamed. And so I want to teach you that, Jesus says. And Jesus, I don't know if you know this, but although Jesus taught stewardship in lots of different areas, he focused primarily on money. Out of all of his teaching in the New Testament, do you know that almost 2,000 verses have to do with money? What does he understand about us? What does he know about us? He he understands that the battle is right here for so many of us of becoming more mature. And so I want to talk to you about this, but here's what, this is going to probably make you laugh a little. I think Jesus, in this parable we're going to study, I mean, don't tell him I said this, okay? I think he kind of takes a little bit of a backwards approach to helping us become good stewards. He, he kind of uses a, a parable, which is kind of like a spiritual truth that uses physical, material, earthly things so that we can picture and understand it. And it's kind of like he does something where the truth is standing on its head. So you're kind of going, like, what is that about? Okay? So you're going to, at first, when I read this story, you're going to think, we're, this is a backwards way. So let me just tell you what I mean. Okay, here's the line. Jesus tells of a dishonest steward 
who was commended. Some of you going, glad I came to church. I've got to get to learn how to be a dishonest steward today. But I'm, that's not it. Jesus is saying that this dishonest guy, even though he like D minus or F as far as a steward, still did three things that can be commended. And I want to talk to you today about those. Again, whether you're a believer or not, if you're here, if you decide that you want to get better in managing money, and you especially if you want to manage it with the Lord, for the Lord, then these three things can be really helpful to you. We've talked about them before. I'm going to repeat them again. The world does not need to be informed so much as it needs to be reminded, someone said. So this will be a reminder for some of you, brand new for the rest of you. And so the idea is, is he did three things. What are they? If you look at the notes, can you see the three big uh, points there? Uh, I'm going to read them, and then I'll ask you to read them, and then we'll say them out loud so we can take them home with us. The first thing he does is he faces reality. Second thing is he forms a plan. The third thing he does that can be commended is he follows through. So read that with me again. He faces reality, he forms a plan, and he follows through. Now can you say it without looking? He faces reality, he forms a plan, and he follows through. So let's talk about that. But before we read through this, let me pray that Jesus will be our teacher today, wherever we are in this whole subject. Now, Lord, I want to just, first of all, give you credit and give you praise for the way that you already have been working in so many people's lives. All throughout the year, we hear stories of people saying, I'm not at the same place I used to be in my understanding of money. It's really helped to grow in this area, and I'm excited about it. And the stories that are being told are such a credit to you and your wisdom, the help of your Holy Spirit. So now we ask you to help us as we think about this subject. For those of us that have already heard this before, help us to hang in there and listen to you, what you might want to say to us in a fresh way. For those of us that have never heard this before, help us to to just understand what our step is today so that we can grow in this area and grow in character and grow in maturity. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, let me read through this. I'll read it with comment, and I'll invite you to read verse 11 when we get to it again from that second gray box. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager, whose steward, was accused of wasting his possessions. Can you see? Uh, This guy didn't do a good job, did he? He wasted the owner's possessions. He did not manage that which belongs to another very well. Verse 2. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? Now notice, this is, this is the facing reality, verse 3. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. Verse 4, notice the plan he forms. I know what I'll do. When I lose my job, when I lose my job, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. Notice that he's, he's forming a plan. I know what I'll do. That picture here is of a light bulb kind of going on. Okay, this reality, here's what I'll do, okay? Verses 5 through 7. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager, the steward, told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 400. You kind of see what's going on here? He's, He's basically telling this guy, does he really have the authority to tell this guy to cut his bill in half? No, this is just another example of how lousy he is as a manager. 
But he's doing this. Why? Because he's trying to feather his own nest after he loses his job, right? Verse 7, then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. Now, verse 8, notice this line. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. This means, shrewdly means that you, uh, you have sharp thinking, you act quickly, you, you try and do something. Now, again, D minus, F plus for character, right? But there's something to be commended. And the manager says, I got to hand it to you. At least you face reality. At least you formed a plan, terrible plan. And you at least followed through. Huh, interesting. So he's commended. Jesus says this, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Most people believe, he says, you know, it's about relationships in the long run. Therefore, look at your money as an opportunity to, to win friends for eternity, to be involved in missions and evangelistic efforts that reach out to people and let them know about how Jesus Christ can change your life so you can be together forever. Verse 10, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. Can I stop and tell you, I think most of us don't, don't agree with that. I don't think most of us believe that. Over and over again, as, as I've taught on this subject over the years, some people have talked to me later and said, well, I plan to do all that stuff. I'm going to form a plan. I'm going to follow through and stuff like that. When I get more money, it'll be no problem. And a lot of people think that what this is about is when you have more money, you do that. Jesus says, no, no, no. It's about how you handle whatever your situation is now. If you can't handle a little well and you can't learn how to navigate that, then you, you're kidding yourself if you think the more you get, the better you'll do because you, won't, you still won't have the character to do that. So it's about whether or not you're trustworthy now. And then he says, verse 11, let's read it again out loud. I've listed on the gray box so we can all read off the same translation. If you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Verse 12. And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Verse 13. No servant, no steward, no manager can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot. You cannot. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who were the religious teachers of the day, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. Can you picture a sneer? Brother, oh, oh man. They were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men. But God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. He's not saying money is detestable. He's saying the love of it and making it more important is. So how do we do this? Like, how, how would we understand that? Let's just say that today you go, you know what, I'm really glad I'm here. I really, I want to get better in how I manage money. And uh, you may, again, 
you may just be interested for that subject alone. But for most of us, I think we're here because we want to learn how to manage our money in a way that will have eternal significance. Not just now, not just this world. The Bible teaches us that if we get this right, we can actually touch eternity. That if we get this right, we can actually be involved in some of the things that will last a whole lot longer than us. Man, that excites me. So how do we do that? Well, the very first thing that you notice is this guy, what does he do? He faces reality. And this, is, this week, I did something kind of interesting. I, I just put my name in front of faces reality. <laughs> I mean, you're welcome to put your name. You don't have to put my name in your notes. <laughs> but what would it look like if you put your name in front of that? And you said, okay, Jeff faces reality. What does it look like when Jeff faces reality? Or put your name in there. Okay, but let's look what this guy did. First, he stops ignoring his true financial condition. He stops ignoring it. You notice what he says in verse 3? Oh my goodness, I don't have like any reserves. I don't have like anything on my resume that's going to help me. Uh, I, I got a bad financial condition. This guy just caught me off guard. So he looks at his true financial condition. And then the question at the end is, have I? I want to just ask you, friends, there is something about this whole subject that just is so easy for us to all fall into self-deception. Jesus, when he was telling the parable of the four soils on which seed fell on, he said there was the third soil where the weeds would grow up and they would choke out the good work God's doing in someone's heart. And then he says, and here's the things that tend to choke out God's work. One of them he names is the deceitfulness of riches interesting phrase, the deceitfulness of riches. What's he mean? Money talks. We already heard Bill talk, but it lies to us, or it promises more than it it can give. It it acts like God, and the truth is that we don't need any help sometimes because we lie to ourselves about that. I'll tell you one of the things that's just interesting me. You ever have this happen? I know this can happen naturally and normally, but you ever have something where you use your credit card, you buy something, and three months later when the credit card bill goes, who, who bought that? You ever had that? Well, where's that funny business come from? There's just something about this where it's just easy to deceive ourselves, okay? But do you know the actual condition of your finances right now? Because if you don't, then you haven't faced reality. That would be the very first thing. Notice Proverbs 27. Look at what it says here. Proverbs 27, 23 says, Be sure you know the condition of your flocks. Give careful attention to your herds, for riches do not endure forever. And some of you are saying, Jeff, I don't know what's at your house, but I don't have any sheep, cattle, or pigs. I mean, I don't know, what does that have to do with me? Well, this was, again, in a farming society that many of these people, and so the writer of Proverbs is saying, look, your livestock stands for your wealth. It stands for how you earn money or can trade that at the market. So be sure you know the condition. Are they in good shape, bad shape? Are you taking care of them properly? Is it? Know the condition, okay? Second thing he does is, he, he, he has to give a full account of his management. You notice that in verse 2? What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your manage, management. Even though he's getting fired, he still has to give an account. I've often thought about this. If you leave here today, and uh, when you get home, whenever that is, later today, Jesus was standing at your front door. He says, I heard what you guys were talking about today. And I just want to just ask. I want to see a, a full, you know, you learned today that All your money is mine, belongs to me, but I've trusted it to you. So can we sit down? Can you show me 
exactly how you're managing it? Can you imagine if you gave all your money to someone and then from time to time you would check in and say, um, hey, can you tell me how I'm doing financially? And you say, uh, let me think. No. Would, would you continue to be excited about that person being your money manager? But a lot of times, again, what happens is most of us live on feelings. Most of us live spontaneous. We just live life. And we float along, and we, and we don't really have any sense of reality. And so how do we do this? And some of you are going, okay, Jeff, okay, I get this. i got to face reality. How do I do this? If you turn your notes over, here's just several things over the years that we've just, again, repeated as often as we can. The first is this. A number of financial consultants have said to me before that one of the things that intrigues them is that in the United States, some people, they have a job, they work hard all week, they bring a paycheck home. The truth is, though, that if you ask them on the spot, do you know how much your monthly income is? They couldn't tell you. They didn't even have the faintest idea. They just kind of expected to keep coming, so they don't have any idea what their actual income is. Therefore, they have no reference point to know what, what, is, what am I being trusted with to decide what I should do with it. So again, can you name that? If you can't, that's just a great starting point. Now, some of you, you don't have jobs where it's the same every month. You have commission or you have different jobs that you're paid by the job. And so, you, like my grandfather who was a farmer, you may have to average what your last year's was each month and kind of give a gauge and then just see if it's consistent like that. But do you at least have some idea of what you're starting with? That's the idea. Second thing is, what are my debts? Now, I know some of you are debt-free. But if you do have debts, and they may only be one, maybe just mortgage, maybe you have car payments, maybe you own mom and dad, maybe you have a friend, maybe you have some other situation. Whatever it is, what are my debts? What outstanding things do I still need to pay back? This is where, again, it gets so tempting to just say, I don't want to know that. Ignorance is bliss. But honestly, the most brave, courageous thing you could do to face reality is to go home and get that on a piece of paper or get that all in a document on your screen and just list everyone out. I've done this from time to time when I wanted to get on the right side of reality, and I knew the beginning was just begin to call a bank and say, okay, what is that, my mortgage? What's, you know, the amount that I still have remaining? What's the interest rate I'm paying? One of those kind of things. Some people, just by doing that, have been able to reduce their interest rate. And they found out, oh my goodness, I've got an old loan that now the interest rates are 2% different. I can go through the work of refinancing, different things like that. But the point is, is do you know what your situation is? Third, how am I spending? Now this is where, again, some people go, I don't want to pay attention to how I'm spending. I want to live free. And again, I'm not, I hope this message doesn't sound like a straitjacket. The point is, do you know how you're spending? All of us have different spending habits and talk about getting interesting, then get married and put them together. The truth is, is we all have different spending. We all have different things that we enjoy doing with money and things that are necessary, fixed costs, those things. But do you know, Trish and I were urged when we first got married for the next 30 to 90 days to keep track, uh, get a receipt for everything we bought or record every purchase we made down to the dime, down to the penny. We did that. We've never stopped. 30 years later, we're still doing it. Every month, she pulls those out. We have a drawer we stick those receipts in. Friends, that has helped me so much. You know what? I found out that I'm an idiot sometimes, the way I spend. But you know, I wouldn't know that if I wasn't keeping track of it. Why? Because the deceitfulness of money just had had me tricked, hoodwinked, fooled. But it's been so helpful to face reality. The last one, and this is a little delicate. 
But do I need to have humble and courageous conversations with someone? The truth is, some of you in your marriages, this is a really painful subject, and so I'm not trying to jump on that with spikes. All I'm trying to say is, you know what facing reality is going to probably boil down to? Pray like crazy, have humble conversations, even if the first one, second one doesn't go very well, trying to get to a place, can we get on the solution side of facing reality? Second thing that he did, if you want to turn your notes back over, is not only does he face reality, but this is powerful, he forms a plan. You notice that in verse 4? He says, you know, I know what I'll do. What shall I do? Okay? I know what I'll do. So that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me. He forms a plan. Again, we've talked about it. It's not, it's not the best plan. But do you have one? Just pause for a second with me. Have you thought about who's teaching this nowadays? Are our schools teaching our kids to form a plan and handle money? Is our government modeling how to handle money? I'm not trying to be disparaging here. I'm just saying. Right now, we all know we've got a problem as a state and a nation. We've got big problems because they're not dealing with reality. We continue to just keep racking up debt like debt's okay. And it's a problem. Parents are not teaching. I do premarital counseling on a regular basis before weddings. And when I do, Steve, Brian, do, one of the things we discover is parents are not teaching this anymore. Where in the world is someone going to learn how to do this? Well, one of the things we want to do as a church is make sure that we offer classes like Financial Peace University. Dave Ramsey can be a huge help on this, by the way. But we want to talk about it just briefly here. So some of you, this might be a time for an appropriate eye roll. You know that I'm going to talk about a plan that I've said the same thing for 15 years. It was a plan that was suggested to me. Most Christian counselors would say this is a pretty good plan to start with. And if you're following along, notice this, that here's an adjustable starter plan that even kids can do. Here's an adjustable starter plan that even kids can do. Now, I know some of you, you use the envelope system. Some of you have taught your kids with different jars or different boxes, give, save, live, or give, save, spend, or however you have it. But that kind of idea, I want to talk to you about what, again, the Bible indicates would be a great starting point. And when I say starting point, I hope you'll circle the word adjustable and starter on your notes. Because here's the truth. The truth is, is that this is just meant to get us started. Over the years, this can be adjusted. Now, I have Chuck and Lisa Bosworth's daughter's bike, Addie's bike here. It's called Rosebud, right here on the front. You notice what's on the back wheel, back tire here. What do they call, friends? Training. training wheels. What I'm talking to you about is just a training wheels kind of thing. Because if you begin to do this, you can at least get started. Now, as time goes on, you'll find that you don't necessarily need to always be, you know, just straight this way. You'll be able to have all kinds of freedom to adjust it. You can ride your bike without it, so to speak, okay? But here we go. The first thing that most Christian counselors and the Bible seems to indicate would be a wise way to go is to give the first percent, first 10% to the Lord. It's part of the 10, 10, 80. Give the first 10% to the Lord. Now I want to walk through these real quickly. We'll look at some of these scriptures and then you can reread them again at home. Look at this first one, Leviticus 27:30. A tithe of what, friends? Everything. everything. So not just money, but a tithe of everything belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. One of the most powerful things you and I can begin to understand, the word most people go, what's tithe mean? Tithe in, in the Hebrew language means tenth. 
So it just means 10%. And so the Bible says is that the first 10% belongs to the Lord. All of it belongs to the Lord. But so he says, give me that back, return it to me. Years ago, I had a guy say, Jeff, don't think in your head and just tell other people to give 10% because the Bible says, really, the Lord's saying, return it to me. I want you to steward all 100%, but each time you get it, first thing you do when you get paid, first paycheck you write. I try and make sure that's the first paycheck I ever, first check I ever write once I get paid is, is to give a tithe to the Lord, just the first thing. And I'll tell you, it's an amazing thing. It's an act of worship, act of obedience and trust. What you're saying is, God, it's all yours, but I'm, I'm returning what you asked me. You said this means a lot to you. I'll do that. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Look at this. Honor the Lord with your wealth. Wealth doesn't mean riches of abundance and affluence only. It means whatever your wealth is, small or big. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. What's the key word there? First fruits. You know, farmers knew that the very first thing when they brought in the harvest was to give the first fruits to the Lord, not the last, not the leftovers, not, hey, I'll figure out this year how I feel about it. And here's what most farmers knew. The word first fruits didn't just mean first. It usually meant some of their best. And they were going, you know what? I want to give the first and best cut to the Lord. He's the one that gave all of it to me. And I want to return that to him and honor him. Notice the next passage, Malachi 3, 8 and 10. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes, and what's the next phrase there, friends? And offerings. Here's the great thing. A lot of people are understanding that giving the first 10% is a great training wheel thing. But tithes and offerings is what happens when a heart just gets more free and doesn't need training wheels anymore. In tithes and offerings, you're robbing me. You're under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe, not 6%, 7%, 8%. Bring the whole tithe into my storehouse that there may be food in my house. Interesting thing. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing, so much blessing, that there will not be room enough to store it. This is the only time I know of where God says, test me. I want to show you on the bottom shelf of your life what I can do when you trust me. And then, uh, again, Matthew 6.33 says, seek him first and he'll take care of the other needs that you have. Just make sure you get him taken care of first in your life in every way, including with your money. Look at what, uh, there's one more thing that tends to happen here. Over the years, I've taught on this subject enough that people will come up to me afterwards and say, hey, Jeff, I'm really sorry that you still think tithing is a good thing for us to do. That's Old Testament. I live in the New Testament. I don't live under law. I live under grace. Two comments for you. I was doing my Bible reading. You know the Bible challenge we did a few weeks back? Uh, and I was reading my Bible in Genesis this week, and I noticed that Abraham and Isaac gave 10% to the Lord. You know, that, you know why that's important? It was before the law was given. They understood already that this honors God. It, it means a lot to them, so they did it. Second thing, Jesus defended tithing and, and urged us to keep doing it. Look at Matthew 23, 23. This is, I checked, it's New Testament. <laughs> what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious, religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Does Jesus defend tithing? Yeah, he just says it still means a lot to God. Okay? And the last thing that usually goes through people's mind on this very sensitive subject. Gross or net? <laughs> you're thinking it. I know some of you are thinking it because you've talked to me afterwards, and I've wondered it too. In fact, years ago, I asked the man, 
gross or net? And he said to me, Jeff, do you want gross blessings or net blessings? <laughs> I got his point. Here's my honest truth. Here's, here's what I'd say to you. Start where your heart's ready to start. Net or gross. I mean, God, God knows your heart. And just start there. This is a want to, friends. This is a get to. Second thing is 10, 10, 80. The next thing is save the next 10% for the future. Save the next 10% for the future. There's such, this is so important. And I think with the economic downturn, I've seen more people are returning to this wise practice. People like Dave Ramsey and others have said, you need to have an emergency fund of 30, three, six, nine, 12 months set aside so that if you lose your job, you're not totally in trouble. And that no one's gonna do that for you. But you can set this up through your work to have it deposited directly into a certain account that you never touch, but it's there. You can do that kind of thing. Third, live within my means on the remaining 80%. Now, this is a radical idea in the United States nowadays. Live within your means. I, I'm not trying to be facetious. Do you know the average American, it's, it's very clear now, is living somewhere between 110 and 120% of their income. You keep doing that, and it's just a matter of time until the wheels come off. And unfortunately, that's what's happening. And I'll tell you what, kids are growing up in homes where parents are fighting unnecessarily about money. And I just long for the day where more of us could do that. You know, you say, well, what's the secret to living within our means? Contentment is huge. It's not the only thing. And some may have a very complicated situation where somebody else in your family is wrecking your finances and you, you just need a financial counselor to help you with that complicated situation. I want to be sensitive to that. But give, save, live. 10, 10, 80. If you were to walk out of here today and say, okay, I've never, a few years ago, I talked about this. A couple came up and said, we've never had a plan. We're going to adopt this plan. We're going to start with this plan. I said, it's great. And they started. And maybe that would help you. You, you might say, Jeff, do you guys do this? Yeah, Trish and I have tried to grow this. We try to adjust the numbers. We try and give you know, we try and increase our giving to the Lord's work. Every year we try and grow in this. We want to grow. We want to be adjustable. Uh, we've taught our kids this plan. You know, my kids, all three of my kids now are adults. But we taught our kids this. When they got an allowance out of a dollar, they got 10 dimes. We'd say, okay, which one goes to the Lord? Which one goes to savings? What do you do with the rest of that? That's the Lord's too. But let's think about how you can both enjoy it and use it well, okay? And there was just this freedom in that. But they, you know, I'm, I'm thankful. I don't know what they're doing exactly. Again, remember, I don't ask. But I think, I think they're, they're thankful that they at least had a plan. And here's the last thing I'll just say in this section. Am I asking the master how to steward his money? Am I asking the master how to steward his money? Can I just tell you that the danger of me giving a plan like this is that you and I can just mechanically go, okay, 10, 1080, just keep cranking it out. But we never say, Jesus, is there any ideas you have for me? I've watched families that once they begin to operate this way and they have more freedom or they have more of a sense of how they're doing, they've gone to a restaurant and they were able to say to their kids, hey kids, we have a server, you just heard her story, she's going through some challenges right now, how much do you think we should give as a tip? I've seen some families tell me later that they were able to say, let's give the same amount of a tip as our bill was. And they were able to do it because they had some freedom. Does that make sense? There's other people that are saying, hey, what are some ways we can help those that are going through time of shortage beyond benevolence fund and other ways? And it's just exciting. Some of you are investing in mission work. Brian Schorberg walked in my office this week and said, talk to Craig and Allison Fowler. Cherry Hills was able 
to finance five men in Ethiopia go to seminary. They're going to have more pastors in that nation. That's an awesome thing because it's a great need where they're planting churches. All that became possible. Does it make sense? Last thing is this. Follow, follows through. Notice he takes one step at a time and sticks with it. Will I? He takes one step at a time and sticks with it. Will I? Oh, Jeff, man, I'm paralyzed with fear. Or I'm just so tired of doing this. What do I do? Friends, I want to just encourage you. Keep taking one step at a time. Any, any of you ever owned an ant farm? My wife's a preschool teacher. We've owned ant farms, okay? I bought one on purpose just for myself in my own office. You know why? Because an ant inspires me. This little guy. You know, we'd say, in the scope of all the world, very unimportant creature. But watching that ant take one little grain at a time, I've watched it move a mountain for that ant. And you and I can do it too, one step at a time. The last thing is, what step can I take to grow as his money manager? What step? What might it be for you? Is it, I guess we've got something going on here. Uh, facing reality is one of those. Was that a good one for you? Is it forming a plan? Would that be a good step for you? Would it be like... Like we talked about at the beginning, you see these post-it notes there on the back? Did everyone see that? It's got 1 Corinthians 4.2, which is our whole verse. Maybe you just need to put this somewhere. Can I show you what I've done? Here's a picture of my billfold. I've been doing this the last year. I don't know if you can see it, but this is what it's right here. Right here, my billfold. I don't know if you can see it very clearly. Here's a close-up of what I did. I took a post-it note, and I wrote these words. Remember, this is the Lord's, your his steward because i just wanted to face that reality and face it better and live under that kind of understanding because if i can look at that and you know nowadays it may not just be cash but it's right next to my credit cards i see it and i knew that wasn't enough so i put one inside my checkbook so every time i write a check this is the lord's lord help me just get better at this i can just get a little better at this every year every month then i know i'll still make mistakes but i can keep going and so uh bill Bill, are you back there? Hey, Bill. Are you back there? Yeah, yeah, hey, hey. It wasn't as bad as I thought. <laughs> well, I'm relieved. Bill, um, I hope that when people walk out of here today, they're going to look at you differently. I hope that every time they look at you, they'll remember this. Remember, this is the Lord's. I write this to myself. You're his steward. Every time you were to look at money, your credit card, what, what if you thought that way and grew in this? So I want to just, um, thanks, Phil, for helping me. Let me just uh, invite you to bow your heads. I want to pray for you before we go. Uh, I want to invite the prayer team to come down front. If, let me say this in closing. Rick Warren says that, that one day, when we stand before God, there's a good chance he's going to ask us a couple questions based on what we read in scripture. First one is, what did you do with my son, Jesus Christ? And the second one is, what did you do with what I gave you? If you know you need to trust Jesus Christ so that he can help you live the rest of your whole life differently, maybe that's your next step. If you've already done that, but God's leading you to become part of a church more actively, like becoming a member, you can come down front as well after the service. If you just need prayer, you have questions, Please feel free to come down front, but now let me pray. Thank you, Lord, for a church family that embraces your teaching. And I pray wherever we are in this whole subject that you'll help us move further along with you.
and that we'll see our whole lives as yours. We're excited where that could lead us. We're kind of scared too. Help us with that. In your name we pray. Amen. God bless you.